to the Capital Creeps podcast. This is episode two. And before I get started, uh, I just have to say I was really pleasantly surprised at the amount of people that listened. I can't really overstate it enough. Um, It was my first episode and it's not like I have a huge following on social media or anything like that. And it's not like I really know anybody in the podcasting sphere. So it was, it was really cool to see that people actually cared enough to sit through it. I did have plenty of people give me feedback, which was helpful. It was awesome. And it was super encouraging. So I'm glad to be back. And this time, I think it will be a little bit different. The last episode, I know I talked about something that, you know, as far as creepy stuff or whatever, you know, it it was much more well known. So I hope that this episode can be a little bit less uh, entertainment and a little bit more information if you care about this kind of stuff, because as far as hauntings and monsters and all that go um I really love this story and this is one of my favorites if not my favorite story that goes into uh like the entirety not just the monster itself so without further ado I'm gonna go ahead and get started with it because it is a little bit longer so what we're talking about today is the Highgate Vampire that's what it's called And it happened in London, so a lot of people aren't really familiar with it if they're in America. I know I wasn't familiar with it. I've heard one person talk about it. And again, this is my cat decides that this is the time at which he wants to run around and go crazy. He was totally fine until I hit record. (laughs) So without further ado, let's talk about the Highgate Vampire and get into what makes him so special. So the Highgate Vampire, he is more of a traditional idea of what you would think when you think monster. Um, I don't really think that he falls under the category of a cryptid because um, unlike, you know, like a Mothman or a Bigfoot, um, he is not supposed to be like a species. He's more of a, you know, traditional idea of a monster, like I said. Um, So with the Highgate Vampire, the setting is it's everything. So this story would not be able to happen if not for the perfect setting that he <laughs> that he was in. So it takes place in London, like I said, um, and it, it, it takes place at the Highgate Cemetery. So just like most everything in London, the Highgate Cemetery is really old. It was made in 1839, and the cemetery was made to account for the growing population in London. So basically, the cemeteries in London were becoming overrun. Um, There truly was just not enough space to house the dead because London's population had boomed. And in turn, they needed a lot more space for the dead because with more life comes more death. So they made the cemetery in North London. And it's awesome. Like, it's really awesome. And I would definitely suggest looking up pictures of it um, if you have time. I went and did that and it's really cool. Um, To me, I saw it and it felt like the very traditional idea of 
uh, a cemetery. You know, what you would think when you think of a cemetery. Very uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer type vibes, which I'm very here for. Um, very, very, very or- ornate headstones. You can tell that um, the the people put a lot of work into making it look really nice. There are gardens, you know, there are the, like I said, the headstones are way, way, way over the top. And it's not just, you know, when you think of a cemetery, you think of tombstones, you think they're in the ground. Um, but this, this cemetery, um, like I said, it's really big and it has more than, it just has more than that. You know, they had mausoleums, they had cata- catacombs, tombs. Um, it even had at one point two Gothic style, uh, chapels those were actually sold later on but um that's how it started with two gothic style chapels which are there today but not part of the cemetery and it also had on what was called egyptian avenue it had 16 vaults and each of these vaults had 12 different coffins and then if you kept going down egyptian avenue you would get to the circle of lebanon which had 20 of these vaults so just trying to set the stage here, it's not all underground, and there are spaces and there are areas that you can go into. So when I was looking at these pictures, I thought of, again, I thought a lot of, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but there's one scene in particular, I think it's the first season, where, you know, she goes into um, this like little house and it's all made of stone and inside there is one big coffin and there's like a big vampire inside that comes out um and it's it's just like that you know it's very creepy but it's very beautiful and so they had you know really really well done you know gardens there really nice like wildlife you know it was so it's really really nice it had it was very green they kept up with all the plants and stuff like that and so this place was actually, it was a really big deal. Um, it had, you know, some well-known people there. And the most well-known person who was buried there is Karl Marx. And they have um, a really famous um, bust of Karl Marx. And I guess people go there who, you know, believed in his um, his philosophies. And they go to honor him and leave flowers and stuff like that. And... Um, so that was just a really big deal. But as you can see, um, important people wanted to be buried there because it was originally a place where, you know, if you were wealthy or well-known, um, you would go and you would be buried there, which I don't know what Karl Marx would think about that. But it, but that's where he was laid to rest. And um, so it started out um, kind of a, a nicer, more high-end place. Unfortunately, though, this was not always the case. So around World War II, the cemetery just went into a gradual state of decline that continued for decades. So the cemetery itself started to lose funding. And so in turn, um, the grounds were not kept as well. The really fancy gardens that I talked about kind of just sort of went to decline um they didn't they couldn't afford groundskeepers to keep up the plants so the plants became really overgrown um it looked sort of like somebody just needed to come and mow the lawn Uh, again this is one of the things where um, 
if you're really interested in this and you have the time, I would take the time to go and look at the pictures of, um, and you know, the, the times in which, like I said, it was decades that, um, that the cemetery was left in decline. So the pictures are, some of them are not even that old. Um, like I said, it started around the 40s, in the 40s, um, but it went on for a long time. So there's plenty of documentation of this cemetery not in the best state. And the scary part is, though, it wasn't just as if it needed to be mowed. Um, that's when, you know, looting started and people would break in and kids would, you know, just do what kids do and they would mess around they would go in there uh homeless people would sleep there um the chapels uh were sold like i said there were two gothic style chapels and they were sold in an effort to keep funding for the cemetery um which unfortunately didn't do enough to keep up with all the decline that had happened throughout the years and in the 60s is when it really got bad and was just sort of left to rot which is awful for the people who were laid to rest there because even though they weren't really, you know, at this point burying that many new people or putting them in the vaults or catacombs or whatever it is that they wanted, um, they still had people that were buried there and they still, you know, they still had people there. So there were still families and you know, followers of Karl Marx <laughs> that wanted to come and see and, you know, visit the cemetery. And it was just not, um, it was in a, it was in a bad state of decay. Um, so eventually, um, they had to actually, it was actually taken, o- taken over by uh, a group called the Friends of Highgate Cemetery. And that started in 1975. And fortunately now the cemetery is in a much better state. Um, like I said, you can look at pictures of it and it looks awesome. So they have been doing their best to change the negative history that it had for that period of 30, 40 years. But this, this time of when it was in a decline is when the Highgate vampire came into fruition. When it comes to the story of the Highgate vampire, to be quite frank, it's kind of hard to track all the stories, keep track of where he came from, um, exactly who saw him, when they saw him. Although a lot of this was documented in the newspapers, it seems like most of what was documented had nothing to do with the vampire and had everything to do with the drama that was brought on by the vampire's presence. <laughs> Which is why I love this story so much, honestly. But I will just have to keep it real. It is a little bit hard to follow. So I just went and looked around and searched for the most common stories. The stories that showed up in the most sources. This one was hard to research. Oh, I, I really did struggle. <laughs> I struggled to keep track of dates. Uh, again, the, the stuff like dates can get muddled in all this. Um, the stories a lot of times lack a lot of credibility. Um, fortunately, with a lot of very um, original, the classic cryptid stories and monster stories, 
it's really easy to find names and dates, exact names, exact dates, and exact locations. But with the Highgate Vampire, it seems like a lot of what made the vampire so interesting was that there was just this cloud of mystery that surrounded him and it it made it that much more fun I think for the public to follow but it does make you know reporting on it talking about it telling people about it a little bit harder so like I said I I saw plenty of different eyewitness accounts supposed eyewitness accounts but if I couldn't find it in multiple sources then I just chose not to put it in so the vampire was actually not the first thing, creature, whatever, experience that happened at Highgate Cemetery. It seemed like the people in this area of North London had an idea already that this was a creepy place. This was a spooky place. And with the way that the setting was, that makes sense to me. So I'm not all that surprised to find that there were rumors and stories and he said, she said about the cemetery before the vampire came about. So like I said, kind of hard to trace the exact start of the vampire. In uh, 1963, that was one of the first times where people reported weirdness. Two 16-year-old girls said that they were walking past the cemetery, not in it, but past the cemetery, and they supposedly saw bodies rising from the tombs. <laughs> so that already starts the theme that we're looking at here of the undead. And so although it didn't necessarily have to do with the vampire in specific, it had to do with... Um, like I said, the common theme that went with him, which was the undead. So occult stuff started happening. As I put in my notes, occult stuff started happening at the cemetery in Halloween of 1968. So like I said, kids were doing what kids do at this cemetery and they were acting foolish. And so what ended up happening was kids who were, or I guess adults too, whatever, but probably mostly kids who were in satanic groups would go to the cemetery and have rituals. And I do have the belief that, you know, everybody has the right to practice whatever religion they want to practice. Um, I don't believe that the modern church of Satan um, has anything, you know, to do with genuine devil worship, but there always are going to be fringe groups of people who do take things to the extreme. And I believe that these people were that. So whether or not they were kids trying to rebel and looking for a way to be interesting and creepy and dark and scare the jocks, or if they were genuine devil worshipers, I don't know. But it started happening, and I guess that's what people came to know. Okay, Highgate Cemetery, people go, and they have like creepy... <laughs> creepy rituals there um and what was happening was the tombs and all that you know the, the cemetery the tombs they were being disturbed and so um people were kind of getting the idea that 
again, it goes kind of with the idea of um, the undead. And so whether or not there were people, you know, messing with the tombs or if they, they were making the undead rise from the tombs, it just added to the rumors of, you know, hey, zombies and whatever is happening here at the cemetery. So what kind of started to take it to the next level and form what we know as the Highgate Vampire was the story that happened in 1969. This woman was walking with her dog through, I think it's pronounced Swain's Lane. It's S-W-A-I-N-E-S. So I think it's Swain's, maybe it's Swan's, I don't, I think it's Swain's Lane. And this, uh, this road cut through the cemetery and she said that as she was walking through the cemetery, she noticed that there's this really tall guy walking around. And she was looking at him because she realized he was moving weird. And that's when she noticed he wasn't walking. He was actually levitating just above the ground. You know, his feet were just not touching the ground. And he was floating around slowly and casually. So... Then he noticed her looking at him and he turned to her and he was just sort of grayish and creepy and he had glowing red eyes. And she said that whenever he looked at her, she felt ice cold and like all the energy was being drained from her body. But she kind of snapped out of it and ran, you know, before anything truly bad happened. So I think it's important to note right now that this is how I figured out that there are multiple types of vampires. There are vampires that suck your blood and there are vampires that suck out your life force. So the Highgate vampire was thought to be the second type of vampire where they can kill you, you know, they can do harm to you just like a traditional fanged vampire, but instead of sucking your blood directly... They look at you and it sucks the life out of you. Again, in 1969, there was an accountant who was looking for a shortcut on the way home and he decided to take a shortcut through the cemetery. So at this time, he realized, hey, I don't know where I'm going. And it was nighttime. It was dark. And can you imagine you decide to take a shortcut through a cemetery, not just any cemetery, a cemetery that has been left to rot, has been known to house little Satan worshipers, and now you're lost. So he's walking around and he realizes he's not just lost, but he feels completely disoriented, like he doesn't exist anymore in space and time. At that point, he heard a church bell and he decided, okay, if there's a church bell, it has to be somewhere that could lead me to an exit. The church must be outside of the cemetery. So he starts wandering around looking for this church. And again, he's disoriented and he doesn't seem to find anything around him that could indicate where the church is. And then all of a sudden, the air around him got cold and still and it was like there was no more sound anymore. 
So then he got the feeling that he was being watched. Like there was nothing else in this world except him and whatever was watching him. At that moment, he turned around and he saw the vampire. But when he turned around, it was as if maybe he spooked the vampire. Maybe the vampire wasn't ready for him. And so the vampire disappeared. So unlike the story with the woman and her dog, it seems like maybe the vampire wasn't ready to attack at this point. But regardless, he got the heck out of there. At this point, too, people were noticing that there were more and more signs that some sort of satanic rituals were going on. And some people were finding dead animals, specifically foxes, around the cemetery. And that some of them had their throats lit. Some of them appeared to have no, no sign of any sort of injury. But they were dead. And that they were drained of all of their blood, which again fed into this rumor that, hey, there's a vampire here. The story of the vampire itself is mildly interesting at best. I think it can be easily explained as, one, people having overactive imaginations, whether it's because of local legends or actual events that are actually happening in the cemetery influencing people's sense of imagination and not to mention the fact that as far as actual vampire sightings go there really aren't that many but what makes this story so good and the reason why anyone still knows the story today are because of two men who decided to turn what would be easily explainable and easily forgotten into a story that is far from that. So let's get into who these guys are. David Ferrant was a young dude that had an interest in all this types of stuff that were going on at the Highgate Cemetery. He was the president of the British Psychic and Occult Society. So he might have even had a part in some of the satanic rituals that were happening in the cemetery. But regardless, when he heard these two stories, he was really interested. He decided to write about the experiences that had been told to him by the supposed witnesses. Although, I will add, I looked up the stories of these people, like I said, trying to find the most substantial stories possible as far as sightings go. And all of the sources repeatedly refer to these people as an accountant and a lady, sometimes even an old lady. So if these people even existed, I'm not sure. And this was, like I said, kind of widely publicized. So I would think that maybe eventually we could get some names if these people actually did exist. But regardless, David was super interested when he heard these stories and he decided he wanted to see the vampire for himself. So he decided to go to the cemetery and go vampire hunting. So he started at the cemetery at nighttime and just walked around until he could find something that piqued his interest. At around midnight, conveniently, he just so happened to see the vampire. 
he saw him. The description was the same as that of the accountant and the older lady, or maybe regular age lady. Like I said, she was only sometimes referred to as old. And he looks at the vampire and his red glowing eyes all seven feet tall. And he said that he felt like his life force was being drained out of his body. So he came prepared. Unlike the other victims, he knew what he was getting himself into. So he decided to recite a prayer and the vampire disappeared when he started praying. It was like he was a regular old vampire hunter. Buffy's going to get a run for her money. So after that, he decided to catalog the two stories that he had heard as well as his own and, and the experience of saying that he saw the dead animals just like everybody else. And he decided to try and publish it. So he published it in a publication called The Ham and High. And so at that point, um, people kind of got excited. He said, hey, if anybody else has any stories, I'd love to hear them. And he decided to publish those as well because apparently people had stories to tell him. So after that, the attention on the Highgate vampire specifically not just the weirdness in general of Highgate, started to get some traction. However, he didn't think that it was a vampire. He thought that it was actually some sort of supernatural presence, maybe a demon, maybe a ghost, maybe a specter, but he didn't think that it was, you know, a flesh and blood vampire like you would think of with, you know, a Dracula or an Edward Cullen. So, As this attention was being brought to Highgate, other people in the sphere of the weird, the supernatural, the magic, started to catch his eye. And so, Sean Manchester comes into the picture. And he is dude number two in the story of the weirdness of the Highgate vampire. Sean Manchester was a self-proclaimed vampire hunter, exorcist, And he was a bishop of the old Catholic church, whatever that was. He wasn't very happy, apparently, with the way that David had portrayed the vampire. Or, as David thought, not a vampire, but something else that was also weird. So, he was interviewed for a news publication that was called Does a Vampire Walk in Highgate? And he said... Yes, in fact, a vampire does walk in Highgate. And this vampire is not just any vampire, but in fact, he is a king vampire. And he was revived by all the crazy satanic devil worshipping that was happening in the cemetery. So Sean Manchester believed that perhaps one of the bodies that had been revived, like I said, ever since 1963, Uh, People had said that they were seeing dead bodies walk and rise from their tombs and all that kind of stuff. He says that somebody who was revived was this vampire. So he had risen in this cemetery and now he was king vampire, whatever kind of title that means, whatever kind of vampire hierarchy they have going on. This guy was a king vampire and he was just lurking around the cemetery, I guess, being king. He said, though, that he knew two girls who were the victims of this vampire. And so one of the girls, he said, 
was plagued by nightmares for nights and nights and nights on end of vampires and that she was suffering from anemia after these uh, nightmares started. She even had bite marks on her neck. So he decided to put garlic by her bed and say some prayers as she slept. And lo and behold, the vampire nightmares stopped and the bite marks went away. The second girl, whose name was Jacqueline, woke up in the middle of the night and said that she felt like her hand was being squeezed and her wrist, like as if somebody was grabbing her. When she woke up, supposedly she had cuts on her hands and her wrist as if she was trying to wiggle it away from somebody. So he was watching them because supposedly, you know, they were being haunted. Her and her brother. And he said that they... They were found sleepwalking almost in a trance throughout the cemetery. So he said that, no, this isn't a specter. This isn't a demon. This is just a good old, good old fashioned vampire. Nothing special about it. Just a vampire. Although this one is the king vampire. Like I said, whatever that means. So he said that he was finding proof of these satanic rituals. He was finding the dead foxes. He was finding candles that were being lit, you know, in little circles or whatever in the way that you would if you were having satanic rituals. And that there were markings around the cemetery that indicated that satanic rituals had happened there. And that that was proof that one of the corpses has been roused in become and become a vampire. And so that what he had to do to save everybody from the vampire's wrath was to stake the body, behead it, and then burn the head. And if you paid attention in the late 2000s, you'll remember, it's actually how they kill vampires in Twilight as well. (laughs) So they kept one thing traditional. So these guys, David and Sean, were not happy with each other. They had totally opposing views of what the vampire was, what he wanted, how he'd gotten there, and how they could get rid of him. The thing that makes this really awesome is they didn't just spat between each other. They had full-blown fights in the media. It was like TMZ was covering <laughs> was covering a vampire battle. And they were, like I said, making publications in the newspaper. But it wasn't just them saying, oh my gosh, isn't this crazy? It was Sean Manchester saying, oh my gosh, isn't this crazy? David Ferrant can die. He's wrong. I hate him. And then David Ferrant being like, oh my gosh, isn't this crazy? And I know everything about this. And Sean Manchester is a hack. And I hate him. And he should die. They both wanted each other to die. (laughs) Not really. I'm just adding that in for fun. So, like I said, it was a completely public fight. They actually announced on a TV program that on Friday the 13th of February in 1970, they were going to have a little vampire hunt in Highgate Cemetery. So this was a broadcast that started, like I said, on the day of. But within hours of the broadcast going up, people decided they wanted to interact with this. So a giant mob formed around the cemetery. And Luckily, there was media there the entire time. So this was being broadcast. This was being recorded. This was being publicized as it was happening. And this mob wasn't just a few dozen of crazy people. It was hundreds of people. 
Highgate Cemetery is huge. And so the police had a big task at their hand. One, getting there and getting on top of the situation in a timely manner. But two, trying to guard a giant cemetery with tons of different entrances. It's just hard to do. So people eventually were able to overtake the police. They stormed the gates of the cemetery. They scaled fences. They got in the back way. And a giant mob ran into the cemetery. And they decided they were going to go vampire hunting. But it wasn't just a simple, let's run around and try and find him. Because unfortunately, like I said, Sean Manchester had said, hey, this is, you know, it's a literal vampire. He's an actual dead body that was risen, you know, revived into the form of a vampire. So people were, you had it in their head that there's no safety. Any of these bodies could be the vampire just sleeping until the night came up. So they went crazy. <laughs> they, they attacked the graves. They staked different bodies. Like they actually were desecrating corpses in like a giant mob of crazy people. And this was all happening live. You know, this wasn't something where it was like a let's plan this event. No, they were there. Sean and David were there. And people heard that they were there and decided, hey, I'm not doing anything right now. You want to go desecrate corpses together? And apparently hundreds of people were totally down for it. So bodies were dug up out of the ground. They were taken out of their tombs. Crazy stuff was destroyed. Tombstones were destroyed. You know, it was like a hurricane had hit the cemetery. It was a madhouse. Eventually, you know, the crowd died down and people went home and whatever. But there was still lasting damage. In the weeks following, a mutilated corpse was found. It had been decapitated and burned. Probably the result of somebody thinking that they were vampire hunting. Maybe it was a prank. Maybe it was serious. But regardless, the, the fallout was real. You know, these people were genuinely digging up and desecrating corpses that are potentially over a hundred years old, you know? So then later on, there was, there was a body that was dug up and this was probably a prank, although not really that funny to be the guy who's on the, the end of the prank. There was a body that had been dug up and a few blocks away, a dude found it sitting in his car like somebody had dug up the body and put it in the driver's seat with his little hands on the steering wheel. Like somebody had done that. Somebody had grabbed a body and played around with it long enough to position it to look like it was driving. So like I said, the fallout was real. In the weeks following, although the public had kind of lost interest well not as much as they had had before definitely not as as much to storm a cemetery David and Sean Manchester still kept up their feud David was actually arrested for desecrating a corpse although he claims that he was innocent he wasn't desecrating a corpse he was in fact trying to kill a vampire or Spectre, or whatever you call it. Sean claimed that he actually killed the vampire shortly after. 
he said that he busted into a tomb with his team of other vampire hunters and found a ghastly figure in the tomb. It didn't look like a corpse, but in fact looked like that of a sleeping, I guess, sleeping vampire. He said he was about to drive a stake through its heart and save the entire city of London when one of his colleagues, if that's the right word, stopped him and said, hey, that's against the law. You might not want to do that. Where was this guy whenever David was desecrating a corpse? So he stopped and uh, instead Sean Manchester and his little team did a ritual with crucifixes and they said that they stifled the evil of the vampire, but just for a short period of time. But the evil did actually return later on, but apparently they had fended him off for a while. This body that was found by Sean and his team was apparently moved. So <laughs> at this point, Sean Manchester and his team said, that the body was moved specifically because the vampire had human servants and that by moving the body, it wasn't just because of any reason why anybody might want to get the body of their loved one out of a cemetery that's constantly being ransacked. But no, it was because they wanted to protect the vampire and I guess while the vampire's sleeping during the day or something, he can't get out of the cemetery. I don't know. He said the humans had done it, done it to protect him. So, they didn't give up. They said that they kept looking and eventually found that body. And that when they went and saw this body while it was resting, it was even worse looking than before. Probably not due to decomposition and being dug up out of a tomb. No, it was because he was a vampire, of course. <laughs> so, Sean says that he drove a stake through it and that at that point the body caved in and began to crumble. So they burned the body and said, we did it, guys. We saved London. We killed the vampire. And it seems like he genuinely believed that he did kill the vampire because that's the story that he keeps going with to this day of, I'm Sean Manchester and I killed the Highgate vampire. <laughs> so they still hated each other, like I said. They actually had a magician's duel that was planned for Friday the 13th of April in 1973. For whatever reason, it didn't happen. I don't know why. Maybe the police said, please don't do this again. <laughs> please don't do this again. This is London. We don't have guns. We can't hold off a crowd of hundreds of people. So like I said... David Ferrant was jailed for messing with bodies in 1974, and their beef never ended. Seems like both of them always claimed that the vampire was real, whether or not they believe it was a true vampire or a demon or whatever the hell else it was, but that there was something genuinely there. Sean Manchester public published a book called The Highgate Vampire in 1985. He was very insulting to David Ferrant in it. And like I said, he claims that he did it. He killed the vampire. As a clap back, David Ferrant published Beyond the Highgate Vampire in 1991. It was about, you know, the vampire in the story, but it was also kind of just a schmear campaign against David or Sean Manchester. 
And the feud never ended. Sean Manchester had a blog, had multiple blogs, in which he (laughs) repeatedly referred to David as a felon and never stopped talking about what a big criminal he was for desecrating a corpse, even though supposedly he he came super close to doing it himself. David Ferrant died really recently, actually, in April 2019. And the beef between Sean Manchester and David Ferrant literally went on until he died. To this day, Sean still hates him. They spent pretty much, yeah, they spent like 50 years talking bad about each other in the media whenever they could. And whenever anybody would pay enough attention to them to even give them an outlet to talk about each other. (laughs) And that's pretty much the end of the story of the Highgate Vampire. Although it has almost nothing to do with the Highgate Vampire and pretty much everything to do with two dudes who took something way too far. With this monster in particular, I don't really think it's worth talking about what it could have been or the theories of if there really was a vampire, if it was an alien, as people like to blame everything on. I think it's pretty obvious that there was no monster. A lot of the sightings were not very credible. And it seems as though maybe it was embellished to keep a certain someone or a certain two someones in the news long enough to give them their 15 minutes of fame. Because I would probably believe that being a occultist magician doesn't really pay the bills. However, with this story in particular, I think it's very obvious, but I still think it's very fun to talk about how this story could continue to last for decades, why we still know about this story, and why we still talk about it today. So I think that the reason why the story was able to gain traction, not just because of David and Sean, but because of, hey, why was this interesting enough for anybody to even pay attention to two Looney Tune guys talking about it in the first place? One, it has literally, and not even, not even the figurative version of literally, it literally has the perfect setting for a monster. Like I said, look this place up. It's awesome. The gothic style chapels. There's tombs. There's catacombs. It is creepy. It's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But it is so creepy. The gardens, again, very beautiful. But it gives very mystic, very otherworldly vibes. It almost looks as if you're stepping into a movie set. It's that perfect for the setting of a vampire. So it's not hard to imagine that the people in London embellished stories, made stuff up, maybe even made up stuff to tell kids to get them from going out of the cemeteries. Because another aspect to this story is, unlike probably 95% of stories that have to do with, and then the crazy Wiccans were having rituals there, there actually were satanic groups having rituals in the cemetery. This is obviously fodder for good stories because people were genuinely finding things like candles and pentagrams and sacrificed animals. They really were there. 
So it only makes sense that people would create stories of, don't go in there, there's a monster that will come and get you. Because there actually were kind of creepy monsters that could come and get you. But it is a lot easier to tell your kids there's a vampire who will suck the life out of you than saying, there are creepy teenagers who you probably don't want to mess with. People want to mess with the creepy teenagers. It's part of the story, right? (laughs) So... Like I said, it's not hard to imagine where the story of the vampire could have come from. In this situation, I think truth was much weirder than fiction. The vampire honestly seems kind of harmless compared to the satanic people that were sacrificing foxes in the the cemetery and desecrating corpses. So, for me, this one seems clear-cut, but... It is really fun and really interesting. With this story, like I said, it is a bit longer. The details are a bit more muddled. And I'm sorry if it didn't make all that much sense. I really tried to make it as clear and concise as possible and keep the timeline as linear as I could because the story really is all over the place. Next week, I have something already planned out. I did have somebody request uh, a certain creepy crawler. That, honestly, this one kind of scares me. Genuinely scares me. (laughs) So I'm excited about that. I'm excited to record that one during the daytime where I won't get scared of the shadows at night. (laughs) So until next time, you guys, stay spooky. (laughs) 